indigenous people's knowledge are very crucial for our planet. It's crucial for all the peoples. Science knowledge are discovered 200 years ago. Technology, 100 years ago. But indigenous people's knowledge is thousands of years ago. So why we cannot put all this together, combine those three knowledges, and give the better resilience to the peoples who are getting the impact of the climate change? We need the people in the center, and we need the decision makers to change. Scientists tell them, and we tell them, we have 10 years to change it. 10 years is nothing. So we need to act all together, and we need to act right now. You've just heard Hindu Imbram on the importance of bridging Indigenous knowledge with science to tackle climate change. This is Climate Talks, the podcast that follows the journey to COP26. It is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your co-host, Cathy Hoke, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Jackie Peel. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. I pay respect to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Welcome listeners, it's Jackie here. With our guests today, Cathy and I will be focusing on the COP26 negotiations and hoped for outcomes of the conference from the perspectives of cities, youth and Indigenous peoples. Before turning to our guests, so Cathy, let's talk briefly about the latest on COP26. Like so many events, COP26 is having to adapt to COVID. They've got to ensure the health of participants and the community, and this is clearly proving enormously challenging and polarising. That's right, Cathy. Access and equity issues are really top of mind here. And it's for this reason that in early September, we saw groups like the Climate Action Network, which is a global network of over 1,500 civil society organisations, calling for the COP to be delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions, which are obviously going to have a big impact on the world's poorest nations and how they can participate. That's right. But at the same time, Jackie, many others, including the Climate Vulnerable Forum, a coalition of countries in the global south that are at significant risk of impacts from global warming, they released a statement saying that COP26 must take place as scheduled. And in that vein, I was really struck by the statement of the Alliance of Small Island States who said that climate change is not pausing and we ourselves must keep going to bring about the urgent substantial action that's critical to giving small island developing states a fighting chance at survival. So all that being said, what's the UK decided at this stage, Cathy? Well, it's obviously going ahead, but the organisers have responded with a series of measures, including offering vaccines for delegations without access to them and offering to fund the required hotel stays for delegates arriving from red list areas. 
But that being said, the conference, you know, it can't pretend to be equitable, not only because of reduced participation from non-governmental organisations, but, you know, Australia's an interesting case too, for different reasons, obviously. We need to have voices there to hold Australia accountable for our climate policy. And because of travel restrictions or limits on returning, the diversity of Australian voices in attendance will be low. And that is a challenge. Yeah, look, it's it's making already very complex negotiations even more complex. And, and we know that if we've got an inequitable representation of countries, this is really a problem when most of the negotiations, the really important parts, happen in the corridors at these conferences. Yeah, and these inclusivity and equity issues are particularly relevant for the sub-national actors that our guests will be talking about today, including cities, Indigenous peoples and youth. I agree, Cathy. For cops in general, these are groups that always fight to be heard and and it's particularly the case for COP26. I think uh, youth in particular are pretty sick of empty promises like build back better, green economy, net zero. And I think Greta Thunberg put it pretty well in a speech to the Youth for Climate Summit in Italy where she said, well, look, it's all blah, blah, blah. And they have a point too. We've we've recently had the NDC synthesis report released showing there's still so much to do to get commitments at the level needed to keep 1.5 degrees in view. And there's still time for countries, including Australia, to update in with NDCs that might actually meet the required emissions reductions. So let's turn to hear from our guests now. Hey, I'd like to welcome to the show our first guest, Dr. Virginia Marshall, Executive Member of the Indigenous Peoples Organisation Australia, inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at the Australian National University. Welcome to the show, Virginia. Thank you so much. Yuridu Marang, everyone, in Wiradjuri. So can you start off by telling us about Indigenous participation in COPs historically and how participation may or may not be different at COP26 this year? Well, I think that uh, we've got to remember that COP26 is a really important um, event for Indigenous peoples across the world. Uh, When you put it in context today that we have over 50 million refugees due to climate change, it's quite astounding. So it's something that we really um, have to be involved with. And I was just taking into account the agenda uh, at COP26 uh, when I arrived is uh, an immense discussion and an agenda for that discussion with so many different um, Indigenous peoples from all over the world. So, you know, we know whether it's the Torres Strait Islander people in Australia uh, who have rising sea levels and uh, also, you know, land that they can use is far disappearing. And we are waiting uh, human rights to really step in internationally and also domestically to deal with those issues of unfinished business. So we have a very long list. I can imagine and it can be quite complicated. And and one of the things that we're talking about in this episode is the importance of the meeting proceeding versus postponing it again. Why is it important, in particular for Indigenous voices, to be there and be involved in the COP26 negotiations in November? Well, I think what we've got to do, we we can't really think of COP26 as winners and losers. 
So we can't think it's just a time for nation states to get together and uh, agree or agree to disagree on different issues. So we really need to be there as voices because as First Nations people across the world, we have the knowledge that the other countries, the West included, require. We have an incredible innate understanding uh, of everything in the environment, uh, the understanding of water and how to maintain water quality uh, and water security issues. We have all of this knowledge. So without us being there physically or at least virtually, the planet is not going to really have uh, very good outcomes, not only due to climate change, but just to understand how these things work. And we've seen that in the fires in Australia in 2019, when cool fire practices came in to really be discussed seriously for the first time. So, you know, we have that knowledge and we have that understanding. So we need to really be involved and we need to be heard. What does it actually mean to be involved and to be heard in the negotiations? I mean, even if you just talk about it from your perspective. Yeah, I think it's really important that we firstly, and this is, you know, a a reflection on the 2019 delegate that went to Mexico City for the UN preparatory meeting for New York. So I sat there with a whole range of delegates from around the world, Ecuador, you know, Bolivia, etc. And we had commonalities, which really strengthens our understanding and our camaraderie across the world. So that's what COP is. Whether it's virtual or whether it's physical, it gets uh, an opportunity to see if we can actually learn their lessons and they can learn some of ours where we can really cross-fertilise that conversation. We know that we just can't sit on the sidelines and and honestly, we're coming towards 1.5 degrees. If we don't abandon looking at coal as the only way forward, we're not going to have a very bright future. So climate change is a serious business, but it gives us an opportunity to talk business with our fellow colleagues across the world. After Glasgow meetings have have completed, what is the measure of success? What are your desired outcomes? I think success is always subjective, and that's because I'm a practising lawyer in native title. (laughs) Uh, And I think that the most important thing is, look, It needs to have lessons that are brought home and that we need to have those conversations with federal government and all of the other jurisdictions. One of the issues that I've got now is as co-chair for the National Water Reform Committee. You know, I'm with an incredibly talented and amazing Indigenous committee, but the work that we have, not only there, but more broadly in these climate change areas that really hinge on how we're going to live as world communities. I think that's an ongoing understanding that this isn't going to finish within 10 or 20 years. This whole idea of living with extreme weather events, we've seen the extreme floodings in Germany and across the world and also the drought in Australia. It's not just once in every few years, we have incredible fires, we've got more yet to come. So, you know, we have to really structurally reform we have to change our thinking. We have to be prepared to, to actually compromise on some of the ways that we are living now so that we do have a future that's shared together. But as Indigenous peoples, we struggle with doctrine of discovery every day. We have a lack of decision-making and, and also with communities, with COVID. You can see that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities 
uh, have uh, really the lowest priority by governments uh, alongside those with disabilities. So, you know, we have a lot of issues that really are struggling uh, to be heard. And I think that's what we're calling for, you know, in Australia is the Uluru Statement from the Heart and that voice, that treaty, and, and also the truth-telling. We haven't even started in Australia to do that. So uh, honestly, Cathy, we have um, a lot to do, but hopefully we'll have the time to do it. If not, we have then very little time. Oh, it's hard to finish on that very uh, sombre and important point, but I do need to thank you for joining us um, for our podcast, Virginia, and I wish you well in your extremely important advocacy efforts at COP. Thank you. Mananguo. Thank you. Moving on to our second guest, I welcome Eunice Arakan to the show. Eunice is the Director of Global Advocacy at ICLE, Local Governments for Sustainability, a network of 3,000 small to large cities globally, um, and importantly, the focal point for local and regional governments for the UNFCCC. Thank you for joining us, Eunice. Thank you, Cathy, for the invitation. I'm delighted to join this dialogue. So... Why are local and regional governments important voices in the COP26 negotiations? First of all, let's recall the climate action at the local level has a history of more than three decades or so. Um, Since the early days of the sustainability discussion, we were saying that the global problems could be solved with local action. That was the motto we had since Earth Summit. And in fact, um, since the 1995, when the negotiations on the Climate Convention started, we were the three observer constituencies, along with business and environmental groups, local and regional governments. What we were always saying that the, the climate problems uh, and their solutions are so big, that is beyond the capacity of national governments. And we have both a responsibility and a mandate to act. But it, more importantly, we also have to have the resources and, and the legitimacy to act. So the Paris Agreement definitely acknowledged this. It has a preambular paragraph. It says that we recognize the importance of engagement of all levels of governments. That was a milestone for us, which means now the global climate action is not just a national issue, but all levels of government has a duty to deliver the goals of 1.5 degree, climate neutrality, and other targets. So with respect to COP26, it's not very far away. What are the issues that are still to be dealt with either before COP26 or importantly during the meeting itself from a local government constituency perspective? We have kicked off our roadmap towards Glasgow at the last climate conference in Madrid in 2019. At that time, we were saying towards multi-level action. The logic was that, yes, this recognition in the Paris Agreement is there, but it is not implemented yet. None of the national climate plans that was presented in the Paris Agreement, in fact, are fit for Paris Agreement because they were all prepared before Paris Agreement was adopted. So none of them refers to multi-level, none of them refers to 1.5. So the success of Glasgow, in fact, starts with work at home. Every nation should bring a new national climate plan, which is called NDCs. Most priority for us is how to make sure these are multilevelly collaborated and developed. In the last 18 months, we have immense change of the architecture in this space. We have from north-south, from U.S., 
to Rwanda. We have from Dominican Republic to South Korea, Japan, who are either already enshrined this in their national plans or on the way to submit this, that this, this new way of multilevel collaboration is becoming a reality. Our first call from Glasgow is that this should be the new normal. The Glasgow outcome should embrace this as officially in the text. The second point is the biggest issue, issue about financing, of course. There may be a discussions on non-market and market mechanisms. On the market side, we have Tokyo, California, Quebec, who are implementing emissions trading programs, and we want this to be uh, recognized. But more importantly, in the non-market mechanism, this new urbanization that will come in the, the especially in developing countries, if this could be presented as an climate action activity, the especially local and regional and national governments can receive the climate finance much better, much, much efficiently. So these are the most two priorities burning for us. Uh, and we hope there will be some progress there because it's now almost clear that none of the climate commitments of the cities and regions can be met without national and global support. Absolutely. It is rather crucial. And, um, and I assume from your perspective, you believe that this meeting should proceed but we're very aware that there's a huge equity of access issue with respect to this in-person meeting that's at this very moment still proposed yeah. to go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, from your perspective, why is it so crucial that the meeting still go ahead despite this equity issue? The reason why we're all supporting that the meeting should take place is that officially, procedurally, the presidency task should be handed over from Chile to the UK in the climate space. But for this, you don't need to mobilize thousands of people. The ambassadors in the UK could have done this easily. And we were also eager to hear leaders summit that that should be some statements. But the rest of the negotiations could already be handled virtually. And we are still uh, seeing that the, the restrictions, the pavilions, the cost of accommodation, the cost of this quarantine, even though it is covered by the UK, it is immense uh, adding stress. And, and this logistical challenges are distracting us from the substance. So as ICLE and LGMA, we always supported that the COP26 officially should be declared. UK should be handed over with the presidency role. But the rest of non-essential processes could have been done virtually. But we are now in this space 30 days before. We will have a pavilion at the local government's pavilion in Blue Zone. And we will make sure this is hybrid. We will make sure voices of all around the world will be heard in the Blue Zone via LGMA Multi-Level Action Pavilion. We hope we can provide you more context from there. We can connect from Glasgow, hopefully, to your sessions. And we hope that the momentum continues. I think that is the important point. Thank you so much for joining us, Eunice, and good luck in Glasgow. Thanks, Cathy. Here with me today is Alison Fong, a Master of Urban Planning student at the University of Melbourne and a member of the Student City Policy Innovation Team that's coordinated by the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate Change, Student Energy and the Melbourne Centre for Cities. Thanks for joining us today, Alison. Thanks so much for having me here on this episode. Really appreciate it. So, Alison, can you tell us a little bit to start off with what some of the key priorities are for students and young people in the COP26 negotiations this year? Actually, before I do continue, I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the traditional unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people. And I'd also like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. 
I also want to extend my respects to all First Nations cultures and countries where the audience might be listening to this podcast from. So in terms of the priorities, one thing I guess I'd also like to make a start on is noting that the priorities we face as young people can differ depending on our backgrounds, experiences, capabilities, and many other things. But also most importantly, climate change impacts our lives in many different aspects too. In general, just speaking from my own perspective, I think a main priority young people will be focusing on in this year's negotiations is how we are represented and empowered as a main stakeholder in climate change action and outcomes. So I'm part of that global youth policy innovation team that you mentioned, and we've been working together as a team with members from the Student Energy, also from the Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy, and also people working at the Melbourne Centers for Cities organization as well. And so as we've been preparing our findings to be shared at the Innovate for Cities conference, an initial observation we've made is how most youths across the globe state the need for that greater transparency and accountability of government policies and action regarding sustainable energy transitions. And I'm confident this is also something young people will be wanting to see in other policy areas as well, as we're aware of how intrinsically linked climate change and just socioeconomic development is. As an urban planning student myself, it's the discussions on how we can better plan and shape for inclusive climate action in our urban cities and regions that I'd also be personally, I guess, interested in hearing more about as well as this year's negotiations. And whilst the policymaking process is important, it's also important to take the time to kind of reflect and think about what the outcomes can come out of it. So how the policy decisions can shape spaces that are more resilient to climate change impacts, but it's also space where young people can feel safe and comfortable. Another key priority in association with that is how our skills and knowledge as main stakeholders are valued or can be enabled or empowered. So like I mentioned, young people are versatile. So we have so much creativity and amazing ideas on tackling climate change. And it's really important that we have the right policy context to support those innovative ideas and also provide more learning opportunities for us to strive for even more. So I guess to summarize, overall, I think the big question young people will be wanting to ask policymakers and delegates at the COP26 negotiations this year is really, are you just relying on us or are you actually wanting to work with us to adapt to climate change? Yeah, that's a really great way to put the challenge. And just keeping on that theme of challenges and voice, you've stressed how important it is for young people to have a clear voice and input into the negotiations on an equal playing field. What kinds of challenges do young people face in having their voices heard in that kind of constructive, really equitable way at COP26? I know that I can only really speak to my own perspectives in general, but the challenges we face as young people are so diverse. I guess one of the biggest challenges we share in common is that struggle to get a seat at the decision-making table. So first and foremost, it's really the perceptions and stereotypes we face as young people that are key in perpetuating the exclusion of our role in climate change policymaking. So take Greta Thunberg's youth climate change strikes, for example, We've had to speak so much more louder and stronger to get our voices on climate change policy and action heard. And that movement played a huge role in shifting that mindset on how people have associated young people with environmental issues and climate change. 
Another thing is also appreciating that multitude and level of engagement young people have in regards to climate change. So some of us might be activists, but there's also the ones who are the advocates, the enablers, the supporters. Our roles may be different, but we all share a common vision. Collective action is when we work best, and it's imperative that whilst we include young people in the decision-making table, we are also mindful we exclude no young person at that table as well. I suppose climate change action has always been spoken as something that's needed to be done to sustain and support our future generations. But as the future generation, I question why we aren't included in the decision-making process. As the future generation, we're at the front line of experiencing the exacerbated impacts of climate change. And I think it isn't a should, but it's a must that young people's voices are heard, validated, and also respectfully reflected in all climate change policy. Well, thanks, Alison. I have to say, for my part, I think more youth voices with the really important concerns being put forward by, as you say, this future generation would certainly enhance the COP26 negotiations. So thanks very much and great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Virginia Marshall, Eunice Arakan and Alison Fong for joining us today and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Greta Robinstone, Rebecca Markey-Taylor and Ariana Dickey. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, taken from their album, Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to Climate Talks via Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the podcast page in the show notes, where you'll also find more information about this episode and our guests. You can also follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and hashtag UniMelbClimateFutures. Thank you.